these founders are obsessed with solving a problem. Like it's nuanced, right? But there's a real, there's a real difference between a founder that wants to start a company versus a founder that wants to solve a problem. And they won't sell the company at hundred million and valuation because they haven't solved that problem for enough people yet. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing here at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Katie Shea, Managing Partner at Divergent Capital. She's an early stage investor, a former founder, operator, and growth marketer. She has a ton of experience on the operating side, switching over to the venture investing side a few years back and launching Divergent Capital in 2021. We dive into a wide variety of topics in this episode. Let's dive in. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And from research I've done, there's so much to dive into. Where I want to start though is in 2014, you start angel investing. Oh boy. <laughs> How did that take place, Katie? How did you start and make the decision to actually like invest in your first company? Yes. So, so interesting. I, I honestly, if I think about it, I'm not even sure I knew what venture capital was as an asset class when I made my first angel investment. So for me, it was, it was very organic. It was never like, oh, I want to have a fund one day, so I'm going to start building my angel investment track record. Um, I, from a very young age, like I grew up in a very entrepreneurial household. Every sing- My parents were small business owners. All my aunts and uncles were small business owners. So I think it was just in the blood, for, for better or for worse, uh, at a young age to kind of go for like high-risk, high-reward <laughs> endeavors. Um, so I... I went to uh, NYU for, for undergrad. I went to Stern, which is the business school there. I studied finance and marketing. And frankly, um, you know, 2005 to 2009, like startups were not cool, like in New York yet. Like, ex- I mean, everybody I went to school with, like you were going to be an investment banker or sales and trader. You were working at Goldman, working at Stanley, one of the big consulting firms. And, you know, I got to I got to school and I was like, wow, like where's all the startup stuff? Like it it doesn't yeah. exist. Um, got really close to the dean and kind of like created the the university experience that I wanted for myself. Um, we got an entrepreneurship minor launched. We launched like a cafe for students by students. Um, I became the president of the entrepreneurship club and like just knew from pretty early on that like that was an area that was really exciting for me. Um, but Again, not knowing really what venture was and having been raised by small business owners, I, I bootstrapped my first company. Like it was, it was a manufacturing business. We never raised outside capital. We, my business partner and I factored against our receivables to grow. We had handbags and shoes and purses and nothing incredibly technical or very sexy, but we sold to Neiman Marcus and Macy's and, you know, Bed Bath and Beyond and a lot of home shopping channels. And so you know, I, I think I just earned a lot of founder stripes in, <laughs> yeah, in that yeah. experience. You know, we, we got to, you know, multi-millions and top line profitability, uh, and we sold the business in 2013. And so really that, that enabled me to do two things. One for the first time in like my short career to that point, I had some liquidity after like not consistently paying myself for four years to get this business off the ground. Um, and the second, you know, maybe more important thing, you know, I, I had only been a young founder, like professionally, I went straight from being like a broke college student to a broke startup founder. <laughs> and 
I think just by nature of networks in New York, you know, really starting to kind of come into its own in the startup and eco, uh, ecosystem at the time, I met a lot of other young founders during that process. And so the first investment I made is a company called Bomba Socks, uh, started by Dave Heath. Um, I was, I had a roommate at the time. My roommate introduced me to Dave Heath and I had just sold my footwear company and Dave was just starting his sock company. So she was like, oh, I think you'll have some advice or insights for him about kind of how to get this thing off the ground. And so, yeah, like it was, it was really organic. I met with him. I was like, man, you're so smart. Like, why are you doing a sock company? <laughs> I had like so much, like uh, residual damage from like running my own manufacturing company for four yeah, years. Yeah. I was like, inventory sucks. Like EDI systems suck. Don't do it. Um, but then he sent me some samples of the socks and it was game over. I was like, Oh my God, I'm never going to be able to wear another pair of socks again. So, uh, that was, I got Dave makes me look really, really smart every day. Uh, because that was my, my first investment. And it was really just like, a. it started as a founder to founder conversation of like, you know, how can I, how can I help this guy avoid some of the mistakes I made when building my own company? Just to dive a little bit deeper, because we're running a you know 300 plus member angel community on top of a fund right now. Yeah. And a lot of the hesitation and pushback is always like, you know, to start investing for the first time, it's this, for whatever reason, and there's some some resistance within that, especially people, you know, even like at early, you know, smaller dollar amounts, there's still that kind of resistance to do it. For you, was it just like, oh, I'm going to start investing now once you saw that company? Or was it mm -hmm. like... I'm just wanted to dive deeper into what you're thinking at the time to get you yeah. to the first one. It was it was so obvious to me, which like I don't know if that's a helpful answer, but to me it was like, wait a second, I can help these founders and participate in the upside of the companies they're building. Like I was like, they're they're smarter than me. They're building bigger businesses than me than I than I did that like really have potential for venture scale. Um but, you know, I started with, you know, five, $10,000 checks, right? And so I think what I would say to a lot of people that are excited about the prospects, like hesitating to kind of jump in, like AngelList is a great place to start where you can put $1,000 into these companies, even if founders are saying, you know, 10K, 25K minimums for that angel round, that pre-seed round, if you have some type of skill set. So for me, like I was a performance marketer, I could like dive into Facebook, Instagram. I knew out of home, I knew direct mail, I knew podcast, radio. Like if you have some type of expertise, you can usually get in with a smaller cash amount up front and then, you know, potentially make up for, for kind of that Delta with advisory shares based on kind of the skill set that you have. Yeah, there's a lot more of that too, to your point of a thousand dollar check. That's our minimum to it. Vitalize Angels. And also even like you have like Hustle Fund has Angel Squad and there's like uh, First Round Capital has an angel community yeah. as well. So you're seeing these kind of smaller check sizes as well, being able to get into companies and with different structures now available too, it can be easier for founders to take those smaller checks totally. um, exactly. as well, which is helpful. That's who the founders want on their cap table, right? Like operators and founders that have, you know, not just give them capital, but also can help them like avoid some mistakes that they've made or help them with growth, help them with hiring, help them with tech, whatever it might be. And going from that 2014 first investment, so obviously went really well, which is great. Good start. Like, yes, let's continue yeah, on. Yeah, such beginner's luck. <laughs> I've talked to a couple people about this. I have a lot of friends that like one of, one of those first investments was one of their best. And I think it's actually, it really helps you think that you're amazing at this and like have the confidence to keep going on about it. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I talked to a couple other people who had the same experience, and you know, obviously there's there's mixed experience on so that. This is so easy. You, yeah, like if you, but if you lose those first few ones, where you're like they just like tank right away. Like it's pretty discouraging totally. if you don't have the mindset, obviously, of like you know, yeah. this is a long term game. We're gonna do right, a lot of right. investments. Right. Um, from that though, progressing from that, the first investment you did a lot more angel investments over time since then, but also getting to the side of full time investor. Take me through that decision mm -hmm. to go from you know all this operating experience, you bootstrap your company to an exit, operating experience besides that as well, to then becoming a full time investor. Yeah, why yeah. did you do that? So the so my first experience was bootstrapping this manufacturing company. From there, I really did jump more into the tech world. So like led growth and marketing um, at you know a few venture backed startups, really from that like zero to thirty million revenue run rate stage. Um, so, you know, the, the jump into venture again was like a pretty, it was a pretty organic one. I think I had made, you know, 15 or 20 angel investments at that time. Again, you know, small, small angel investments, but, um, you know, I had, I had picked some, some winners, right. And it, it's a long game industry. You don't really know if these are winners for 10 years, but early, early signs were looking really promising in regards to growth and fallen capital and, uh, the caliber of the co-investors that were investing later. Um, and largely I think about it as like, I, I'm like, I feel like I'm a talent scout more so than like a, tr a investor, um, especially yeah. we're, we're investing pre-product, pre-revenue in most cases. And, um, I know I, I, I genuinely kind of think of that as my superpower and skill set is like talent recognition, um, before it's obvious to everybody else that the, the talent <laughs> is there. Um, so, uh, j the formal kind of jump on to this side of the table um, while I was in college, I became a part of this group called Cairo Society, and I was the NYU like chapter president. Um, there was kind of like eight of us that started Kairos at different universities. So Kairos in its infancy was kind of like a, it was a community, right? There was like award recognition, annual summit, but it was largely kind of underwritten by big corporate sponsors that were kind of like helping this nonprofit stay alive. Uh, the biggest learning from that experience was every single year, Kairos selected 50 student-run businesses kind of for this like big kind of media recognition. My first company was in the first cohort of, of like the K of the Kairos Awards. Uh, fast forward, when we looked back on the first seven years of that like recognition award program, there was multiple unicorns, like a ton of success stories. And that was kind of the aha moment of, well, like if, if we had a fund, uh, or like any kind of amount of money to attach to this like award recognition program, we would have like a, a top decile performing fund. So, um, yeah, I mean, Ankur and, and Alex Beyonds and Ryan Bloomer, uh, they reached out to me. I think they were like looking to add a partner to the team. I had done a decent amount of angel investments and we had known each other for 10 years. So, so again, I think, one of the challenges of getting into venture is it really is a relationship building game and a, a trust game. So, um, yeah, when they were like, Hey, we're, we're raising a fund now to basically go back these pre-seed founders. I was like, sign me up. I cannot <laughs> believe that I could do this as a career. Like once I knew, once I knew that that was an option for me professionally, I was, I was kind of hooked. And I think a lot of people are really surprised when like founders and operators go over to the investing side of like, is it really going to be exciting enough for you to do? And I just think from a personality ethos perspective, I, I was exhausted by having to be like the founder that was always, you know, we 
magazines, TV, press. Um, and I think some of the best founders, like this incredibly energizing for them to like go and say the story and be the face of the company. I love being behind the scenes. Like <laughs> I, I love like giving the press opportunities to my founders. And if I can work with amazing founders that are changing the world for the better, making a ton of money in the process for themselves, for their companies, for their investors, for us, for our LPs, and nobody knows my name. Like that's my, that's my happy place. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate you coming on the show then anyways, (laughs) but I will say though, one of the things you you, you mentioned, I want to get into Divergent in a second, but you mentioned talent recognition, pre-product, pre-revenue, all of that, which a lot of people would be like, well, how do you even start with that? What do you even do? And I, you know, I vitalize our stuff is we have our angel community is pre is pre-seed. So we are yeah. in the same category yeah. sometimes of like so early. We had four pitches yesterday and one of them is like, yeah, pre-product, 75% yeah. built. We're like, okay, for you, you're pretty successful with this already. Like, what are you looking for? How are you finding companies? Like I also heard yeah. on like Twitter or somewhere else, like, yeah, Katie just gets the best early stage deal flow. I'm curious as to how this is happening for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So I think there's two questions there. Like how, how do we pick talent like before there's much else to, to underwrite and then kind of yep. where deals yep. will come from. So, so on the first side, I've, I've tried to find a better word to describe this over the years, but I, I keep coming back to it. That these founders are obsessed with solving a problem. Like they're not obsessed with starting a business because it sounds cool or they're, you know, friends with, other investors so they can kind of spin up a deck and raise some capital. Like for some reason, personally or professionally, they spent years or decades like obsessing with a problem and coming up with a unique point of view about what the solution is and like why it's that and why they are the person that is like most suited to build that solution. Um, And I think especially in markets like this, which, you know, I think most people would say feel pretty frothy. It's been like a 14 year bull run there. It's nuanced, right? But there's a real, there's a real difference between a founder that wants to start a company versus a founder that wants to solve a problem. Um, And they won't, they won't sell the company at hundred million and valuation because they haven't solved that problem for enough people yet. Like our, our favorite founders, they're, they're brilliant at context switching, right? Like they can be the like incredible storyteller. They're super motivating. They like get investors and uh, teammates and you know co-founders involved. And in the next minute, they're like ruthlessly focused on the metrics and the KPIs and growth and testing and failing fast. And like, it, it's very rare, I think, to find that, that kind of like dual ability in, in one person or like in one founding team. Um, the founders we back, they, they have not been thinking about this for like weeks or months. They, they tend to have been thinking about it for years or or decades. Um, so I think that's, that's my best attempt at answering the first question. I still feel like it's more art than science in many ways. Um, on the on the deal flow side, I mean, this is one of the things that got Lucy and I the most excited about, you know, really the potential of Divergent being like an institutional multi-decade fund. Um, so when we started angel investing together a couple of years ago, we started tracking all of our deal flow in a Google Doc. And it was so refreshing that there was like no overlap. <laughs> like Lucy is... She's like institutionally trained. She was a deep tech investor. She's a machine learning scientist turned investor uh, at like Bridgewater, 112 Capital, Graycroft. 
um, you know, her breakout investments are in like robotics and space tech and, you know, biotech. I have historically, you know, looked at like manufacturing, fintech, digital healthcare, that's kind of where commerce, uh, that's where a lot of my successes are. So, you know, her network is more academic scientists, technologists. Mine is more like founders, angels, operators. Um, and I think we feel really good about Divergence DFL today because like the, the breadth of kind of those two networks coming together has just been really, really exciting. Um, I'd say more, more, more so than not, you know, we're, we're looking to meet with founders before they've even like maybe given notice to their current employer, or like they may not even have an EIN or like a bank account yet. Um, because we really do want to institutionalize what might've been that like very painful angel round for them, especially if they're not already super plugged into the, like the cool kid Silicon Valley ecosystem, you know? Take me through that and with that, with Lucy and obviously having that relationship with her and then be able to grow, invest together even before Divergent and then raising this fund. I mean, I saw one one of them being like Carta mentioned you as, you know, obviously partnering with you guys as well. But take me through that process of raising a fund. There's a lot of people thinking about it, a lot of, you know, solo capitalists thinking about it, people mm -hmm. in different ways thinking about the early stage kind of getting started with a fund for you. What was that experience like, Katie? Yeah, uh, it's definitely a labor of love. Um, I feel... I feel like we, all things considered, like less than a year of fundraise um, for a debut microfund entirely on Zoom feels pretty good to us. <laughs> Obviously, like some people are raising funds in like a week. So we, as we aspire uh, for that to be the case, you know, a, a fund or two from now. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I actually, I feel like it was different fundraises in different parts of the process. And so what I, what I mean by that is, you know, I thought historical track record was going to be the most important part of the fundraise. Like, and we, I think we were like, okay, like we've made 50 plus investments between the two of us personally and as partners at VC funds. And so, you know, we have, we have an incredible track record. We have unicorns, all this stuff. Like, I just thought that was it. Like, I thought that would be it. like, okay, like here's the numbers. Clearly we're good at this. Like back us again. I think the biggest the surprise or just kind of what was unexpected. I mean, I think there's like 900 venture funds raising right now. So the numbers are table stakes. Um, and I feel like people just like glanced at that slide quickly. They moved on. Um, and I think really for us, like the partnership and the thesis became like what got people excited. Right. I think we, I think a lot of our LPs are based like, oh, this is a really interesting hybrid fund where I'm going to get like deep tech and biotech exposure because of like Lucy's network and Lucy's expertise, but also kind of like fast breakout consumer exposure from like Katie's network and Katie's expertise. I think the two of us, like I wouldn't have done this with anyone except for Lucy. I think that probably showed in the process, but from both a sourcing diligence and post-investment support perspective, like our two skill sets couldn't be more complementary. Like Lucy is like the CTO, CPO type. Like she's been the CTO at a blockchain startup that just raised like a $20 million series A. Like both of us have been founders, operators, and investors. And really Lucy more on the technical side and myself more on like the growth and commercialization side. And when you are a founder, like pre-product, pre-revenue, those tend to be like two of the skill sets or two of the, the areas where you're looking for the most advice and guidance. Um, so I think that was, that was really good for us there.
Yeah, it's such an interesting market now. I mean, to your point of how many funds are are raising now and what you're seeing in this industry of you know massive funds, a $400, $500 million seed fund. You're, I mean, there's just some crazy things happening that yeah. everyone, including us, are trying to think about what to do with that. And you know, how do you direct your strategy? It's wild. I really dislike the like bigger is better vibe and like venture generally speaking. Like I get way more excited about the idea of five to 10 Xing micro funds than I do about like running a billion dollar fund with a huge <laughs> platform team. And, you know, Lucy and I, our, our favorite part is working with the founders and like getting in the trenches. We only make about eight investments per year. So it's, it's very kind of, you know, high conviction, you know, more kind of union square venture style of the world versus kind of this spray and pray strategy. So, you know, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but even within a, the fundraise for the fund, like in the beginning, it was more, you know, track record partnership thesis towards the end. Once we had made six investments, like that was what we were, that was the only thing we were talking about, right? Like, tell me about these specific six investments. So I think it really kind of, you're, if you're going, if you're thinking about raising a fund or kind of institutionalizing, you know, what you've done as an angel, um, I think depending on kind of where you are from a track record perspective, it's it's quite a different fundraising story. Yeah, it definitely evolves from, from that. And how do you stand out in some capacity? And even with what we've seen in solo capitalists having media arms that then they can leverage, like, you know, Packy McCormick yeah. with his newsletter, you look at- Yeah, I love Packy. Yeah. yeah, other people have done that too. And they're getting access because they have all these people who are already kind of following them and keeping tabs of them as investors because they're running interesting things. And then they get allocation in the companies, which- Makes a lot of sense. Uh, obviously, really? you know, you have the VC side of yeah. it too with Harry, with Harry Stebbins. Yeah. Too, so yeah. So Lucy and I, I think we feel a bit contrarian here. And again, like time will tell, right? Um, Lucy and I have like terrible, like digital presences. <laughs> like we're never going to have the best website. We're never going to be profound bloggers or, or podcasters. Lucy doesn't even have Twitter. I think she's like the only VC and like that doesn't, might not have a Twitter she is account. the only VC. Um, <laughs> I think what we take pride in and which hopefully will kind of remain um, and say like tried and true when we have 30 minutes or 60 minutes, we're, we're going to call founder like, particularly one that's like stressed about something or something's going wrong or they need to hire somebody or like a, you know, they're, they're gearing up for a fundraise. Um, and I think that's just where we thrive. And so, you know, frankly, we do struggle a little bit with like, do we have to play this game of like be more publicly facing and be more outward. And I think so far, like, you know, when, when prospective LPs like called founders, like that was it, it was like they, they invested. Right. So, in the dream situation, we can kind of continue to lay, uh, stay under the radar from like a outspoken digital perspective and the numbers can keep, <laughs> keep selling us. Um, we'll, we'll see, but yeah, it's something, it's definitely something we think about. It's like, is, you know, can, can you have that strategy right now when every single person is becoming a media brand and every single fund is becoming a media brand? Yeah. T- time will tell. Obviously it's worked out yeah. well for you and you have a track record and as well as the operating experience before to kind of leverage that as well as what you're doing. Uh, yeah. it, if you don't have that as a, it, it can change if you don't have that. You're trying totally. to investing. No, I think too. it's like a great way to get out there. Right. And like, especially if you are a great writer, like I don't consider myself an amazing writer. So like, I'm never going to thrive. I'm never going to be a better writer than Packy. Right. I like, I feel like I'm really good at like these, you know, curating small in-person events and like, 
meet making like really valuable connections and helping people hire executive team members and helping them with their growth and performance marketing. So for better, for worse, those skills tend to be a bit more like behind the scenes skills. Yeah. Which makes sense. It's working for you so far. I know we're out of time here, Katie though. So what's the best place uh, for people to reach out to you, connect with you if they'd like to? Yeah. Uh, we have a site. It's pretty lightweight at this point, but it's divergenthq.com. And if you send an email to hello at divergenthq.com, it'll go to both Lucy and myself. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, Katie. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.